Well, Sigby suggested that I talk about arbitrariness. And in particular, uh, two things here that we see very early in the Bible, uh, the Sabbath and uh, the tree, and both often um, understood or described as um, arbitrary tests of obedience. And as I was going through this, it came up with so much I wanted to say about the tree that I think we're going to leave the Sabbath to uh, Sigvi to explain about uh, whether or not the Sabbath is, is arbitrary. Uh, so we're going to concentrate on, on the tree in the garden. And um, I think uh, we try to understand this, and uh, this is kind of how perhaps I'd understood it uh, younger in life, thinking about the tree. Let's just uh, make a little illustration here. Imagine that you're adopting two children, uh, maybe 10-year-old boy, 12-year-old girl, something like that. And, um, you know, you're, you're excited about this. And so you're preparing. You, you know, take care of the, the house. Maybe you, uh, you have a, a playroom set up. Uh, you get a golden retriever. You make the yard perfect. Plant a garden. And uh, then finally the day arrives and you, and you get to, to bring these two children home. Okay, and everything just seems perfect. Okay, and the children are excited about all of this, obviously. And uh, this, it seems, would seem rather unusual then if you would uh, go on to, to do this. That, that maybe after some time you take them out and in the middle of the garden you show them a tree. And, and I chose a persimmon tree because our, our neighbors have a persimmon tree. And two branches come over our fence. And uh, we have, for the last month, just been enjoying these persimmons. They're, they're delicious. But anyway, you've, we've got this tree. And so you tell these, these two children who've done nothing wrong, in the middle of the garden, there's a tree. And you tell them you made the fruit of any tree in the garden except the tree that gives knowledge. And maybe just, let's just say for our illustration, you made any fruit of the tree except for this one. And you must not eat the fruit of that tree. If you do, you will die the same day. Would, your, would a 10-year-old and 12-year-old girl be surprised by a command like this? What would they think about you? in this circumstance. And uh, was it bad-looking fruit? I mean, we know that when Eve looked at it, it looked beautiful and tasty. It was not an ugly tree, nothing unattractive about it. Okay, so what, what we're trying to grapple with here is, you know, we would have a hard time, at least in that setting, understanding you wouldn't do that to children in that circumstance as merely just a test to see, are they going to obey? Are they going to obey? And would you have such a severe consequence for disobedience. Um, you know, Dorothy and I were at some friends recently, just a few weeks ago, and somehow the subject of the tree came up, and, and our friends uh, said, you know, it just makes God look rather small, petty. One mistake and they're out. It, it's really hard to describe this story and to make God look good. Uh, that was their comment. All right, so um, a few weeks ago, when Sigby talked about this, there was someone in the back of the room who said, you know, it just seems like you've got children and you put a piece of candy somewhere. And you say, don't eat that piece of candy. Is it just, it seems too tempting, almost enticing to put something there and then to, uh, to say you can't have it. And that's how Mark Twain understood this story. He said, uh, Adam was but human. This explains it all. He did not want the apple for the apple's sake. He wanted it only because it was forbidden. You know, you tell someone you can't have something, and does that even uh, make it more attractive? Well, that was, that was kind of his point. 
Okay, and uh, this is kind of where we left off last time as Sigvi was going through this. We read these slides, but I think for, for the setting, for us trying to understand this, I just want to read them through again. These are powerful quotes. Again, this is someone who uh, finds uh, real problems with the tree. Okay, so this individual in a book called Garden of Eden said, the sheer irrationality of the command not to eat of the tree and of the threat to deprive of life if it was eaten has had great effect on the history of understanding. For it has been read as if to mean that the slightest deviation from the slightest divine command, however devoid of perceptible ethical basis that command might be, was and must be totally catastrophic sin, which would estrange from God not only the immediate offender, but also of all future descendants, and indeed all future humanity." It is God who is placed in a rather ambiguous light. He has made an ethically arbitrary prohibition and backed it up with a threat to kill, which in the event he does nothing to carry out. And that the person who comes out of this story with a slightly shaky moral record is, of course, God. Why does he want to keep eternal life for himself and not let them share it? Even more seriously, why does he not want them to have knowledge of good and evil? Okay, I think these are, these are pretty good questions that are addressed. So this is kind of what we're going to uh, kind of discuss here. And, and I won't read this, this whole quote again, but, but I think this is where we left off. The, the killer tree, okay, as this individual described it, that God described everything as very good here in Eden. Well, if that's true, then is this killer tree no part of God's planting? So here is, uh, I would say, I spent a long time yesterday just reading how do other people interpret the tree. And it would seem like there's, um, I don't want to say it's a, a uniform agreement, but this is what uh, seemed to come up again and again and again. This was from the uh, uh, Seventh-day Adventist uh, Sabbath School Quarterly just a few months ago, <clears throat> that it was a simple test to Adam and Eve to see whether they would, in their freedom, obey the Lord. Test of obedience. Okay, that, that would seem to be the most common understanding. And we could just list up a whole bunch of quotes on this. The reformer Calvin said that it was a trial of obedience that Adam, by observing it, might prove his willing submission to the command of God. Okay, but again, taking back to our illustration earlier, would you do that to some children that you were invited into your home? You have a, a test of their obedience. You put a tree out there. How do we understand God's actions? Now, I'm not going to be talking about the Sabbath, but the reason I think we, we should grapple with these two stories together is that they're both seen really in the same light. Okay, Luther called the Sabbath here a stern commandment. Okay, and again, taking from the uh, recent uh, Seventh-day Adventist quarterly, that much like the tree, that the fourth commandment is, in a sense, a test commandment. In a certain sense, the Sabbath is arbitrary. Why the seventh day over any other? It's because God said so. That's why. There's no reason. It's, this is what God said. There's a lot of obvious and apparent logic in not stealing, not killing, not coveting, and so forth. You don't have to be a Christian to follow those precepts. Many non-Christians do. But to obey the seventh-day Sabbath, which isn't rooted in any natural phenomenon, is to reveal a willingness to obey simply because God tells us so. Okay, so um, do we like these uh, descriptions? Yes, you have a comment. Melissa has a microphone here. I disagree with that last statement there, the entire paragraph. Uh, I don't know where I got that from. It's a conclusionary statement. They don't really put forth anything to support that argument. Well, but uh, 
this is why I think it's an important subject because if, if there's meaning, if there's relevance, if there's something of great significance, then does it cease to become arbitrary? I guess is the question. And look at, uh, just on your point here, let's, let's just talk about arbitrary since that's what we're discussing here. Here's the dictionary definition of arbitrary. And uh, just different words that I pulled out. Despotic, tyrannical, capricious, unreasonable, unsupported, marked by or resulting from the unrestrained and often tyrannical exercise of power, determined by chance, whim, or impulse, and not by necessity, reason, or principle. Arbitrary is often used in a negative way to describe a set of rules or a ruling by a judge that does, doesn't seem to follow a logical or legal thought process. Actions that lack a meaningful goal or outcome. And uh, do we want to associate with this form of philosophy, nihilism, the philosophy that believes that there is no purpose in the universe and that every choice is arbitrary? So why is it significant? Ultimately, you know, we, why is it significant whether we say this is or is not arbitrary? What, what relevance does that have? Why can't God just do something arbitrarily? What, what are the implications of whether we say this is or is not arbitrary? Yes? When you use the word arbitrary, the is unjust. Mm-hmm. So if you're saying God is arbitrary, then you're saying God is unjust. And I don't know that I won't go there. Yeah, and I think that's, I would agree, that's a major point. Is It has a reflection back on God, does it not? How we describe this, it, it, it certainly would, would have implications about God's character and, and our understanding of the person of who God is. Does not say if you eat it, I will kill you. We could perhaps give God some of the same things we gave him in Revelation that says there's another power. Yes. Most decisions are made on the basis of uh, trying to answer either one or two questions. One, do I have enough or am I enough? Mm-hmm. I, I think that if, if that's true, uh, if that generalization is true, I don't think Adam even had the same problem. Enough, not good enough. So, mm-hmm. so I would suggest that their, their basis for, for making decisions is not wasn't the same basis on which we make our decisions, and because of that, I think they were working from a totally different framework on on the, this decision that they were asked to face. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, I think we shouldn't look at this this uh, situation from our own parochial viewpoint. I think we should try to look at it from from a perfect person, from perfect people, who, who didn't have the same psychological problems that we had. Mm-hmm. It's wonderful, the internet here. I just pulled up arbitrary, and, and uh, here's some examples here. A student at a school complained. The dress code ruling at our school was completely arbitrary. Principal would give, principal would give no rationale for how the decisions were made. And then uh, another, the judge's ruling seemed arbitrary and not based on rational interpretation of the law or any precedent. Okay, so here's another, uh, we'll give one more illustration. Um, I brought some handouts today. And let's just say the, the room is flooded with handouts. We've got them in the back. We've got them all over the place. You can take any handout that you want. Okay, but there's one handout. It, it's actually over there on that table. And uh, I've just decided to exert some authority here. And uh, you may not take that handout. Okay? And uh, so this is just off limits. Okay, and now what is going on here? 
What have you done? <laughs> I just picked up a handout. Okay, get out. No, that's the rule. Okay, now I'd like to, one of you please uh, be a sentry at the door here so we don't let uh, Brent back in. Okay, this, this is uh, at least many people that I've talked with, that's basically the understanding. Now, Brent will let you come back in, so thank you. So let's just talk about this a little bit more. What was the reason? Is there any other explanation we can come up with other than God testing their obedience? Uh, what, what, let's try to look at this from God's perspective. What, what possible rationale would he have for putting the tree in there? Or do we just we want to accept that was a, a test? Well, I would think that at the time, um, the devil would have reason to uh, accuse the Lord of not giving Adam and Eve a chance to choose against him. He created them in paradise, gave them, he met all of their needs, and the devil, by accusing them, you know, if you gave them an opportunity to rebel against you, let's see if they do, because my wager is that they would, if you gave them a way to disobey and choose against you. Okay. So I, I like that you're bringing the devil into this, and you notice the, the, the quotations I listed earlier, if, if it's just a test of obedience... I mean, just the fact that you've got Satan in the tree, wouldn't that suggest that however we're going to incorporate an understanding of the tree, we, we need to bring the, the demonic as a player, as a, as a factor, as something that, that is a relevant part of why God had the tree in the first place? There was another hand uh, down here. I uh, think that uh, if God had given Satan complete access to Adam and Eve, think that would have been a fair fight. I don't think Adam and Eve would have been able to resist. I think Satan was so far advanced over Adam and Eve, Adam and Eve, that I don't think they would have been able to resist their subtlety and all the things he brought with him. So I have a feeling that the tree was a way of limiting Satan's access. Very good point. And do we have stories of Satan popping out behind other bushes and other trees? in the garden. Just the fact that the only time that they have the encounter with the Satan is at the one tree they're not supposed to go to, uh, I think, yes. Can, can we see the tree as a restriction, as a protection, uh, really, for Adam and Eve? Absolutely. Uh, Harvey. Uh, you had early commented up from the perspective of Adam and Eve. When they open their eyes on creation, the first creature they see is God. They don't know God. They just know that he made them. But they don't know anything about him. We are made, I believe, hardwired from creation to want to know. Mm -hmm. So there would be a natural desire to know God mm -hmm. and to know who he is. Mm -hmm. So I think from Adam and Eve's perspective, one can say a desire to listen to and to respond to God would be expected of them. Mm -hmm. Second point that I want to make. <clears throat> In Genesis 2, we have a description of the garden is beautiful and everything is good for food. The serpent offers this as beautiful and good for food. And the whole garden, why just one piece of fruit? Mm -hmm. It was desirable to make them wise. 
Genesis 1, they're learning from God himself. So the temptation was to cut off everything and to go for a diminutive rather than to go that for that which they were hardwired to desire for, which was infinite. Yeah. And so to me it seems like much more an offer to control than it was uh, to and, and the desire and a willingness to trust mm -hmm. as the key issues. Yes. I'm just expanding on some of the comments. I think the whole context is much larger than just two children parents. Good, and I'm going to actually, we'll, we'll put the serpent there while, while we're listening to your comments. Uh, maybe just expanding on your analogy of your farm or your home and telling your children not to eat this tree. It's kind of like, um, saying to your children, you know, somebody's threatening to take our farm. In other words, there's a, there's a larger context of, of threats and, mm -hmm. and accusations and so on. And um, so this is this is not just your beings to me. This is this is a much larger issue. Right. And I think that's where taking the Bible as the whole as a whole, and and bringing in. You know, the war in heaven in Revelation, bringing in all of the other stories to this one story is, is helpful for, for building a more realistic picture of what happened. Yes? Surely there, surely there was some time in between the time that he told him not to touch the tree and, and the time that he did so. Uh, and he seems like he would have mentioned something about why they weren't eating the tree. That, White mentions this that they were warned about an enemy. So I mean, there's more than just saying don't don't touch that tree. Mm -hmm. Yeah, kind of like Harvey was talking about, you know, they needed to learn about God, and I'm sure he was trying to unfold to them all kinds of uh, important things. Yes. In your illustration about the handouts, you had said there are lots of good handouts here, and you were talking to a group of medical students, and you said, Don't touch that one because it's contaminated and it may be irradiated or chemical kind of contamination, they will go into the hazardous waste. Would that have helped to explain it? Also, regarding the previous comment about, I believe there are quotations that the angels put a lot of instruction to Adam and Eve. They were not just. Uh, immature children, they were intelligent, perfect beings and they received a lot of instruction. Is that correct? Well, we're, we're just going from what we have in the text. And if you haven't read Sigvi's article uh, called, uh, I think it's called The Killer Tree that goes off that other quote, you really should. Well, I think it shows, too, how influential Satan is. Mm -hmm. The influence that he has because despite all this he can convince you God. I mean, he took a third of the angels who had been around God for how long, mm -hmm. and yet he was able to convince them and influence them. So I think we're the story. Oftentimes, I think minimizes the effect of Satan, how how strong or powerful or influential or whatever adjective you want to use yeah. that that we're dealing with. I mean, it's not you're walking along the path and you see a snake. And, yeah. You know, I, I think we've often minimized the impact. Mm -hmm. Well, and kind of going along with that, I, I think even in the text, 
Now, now we bring in, you know, the ancient serpent of old in Revelation and, and, you know, project that onto Satan as I think we should. But even in the text in Genesis, I think there are some indications, even before the serpent in the tree, that perhaps all was not good when God uh, created our planet. And let's just go back to the, the beginning of the Bible here, that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void, and that's tohu vabohu, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God, and, and you know the rest of the story, and God said, let there be light. Uh, th- this formless and void and darkness, some have interpreted this as having meaning beyond just a, a chaotic uh, planet. So formless here, tohu, is a worthless thing, desert, chaos, confusion, an empty place, void. And a void is an undistinguishable ruin. Okay, is there, is there meaning behind the words used here beyond just trying to describe, oh, we've got a piece of rock that God decided to, to do some creation on? And uh, the words tohu bohu are used only twice in the entire Old Testament, two other times. And uh, this verse in Jeremiah, I think, is quite telling because when it's used here, it, it seems to be describing a, a, a spiritual darkness, uh, a chaos that is, that is quite different. Now, this Jeremiah is describing the people as they're about to go off into the Babylonian captivity. And so the enemies here are the Babylonians that are coming from a country far away. These enemies will shout against the cities of Judah and will surround Jerusalem like men guarding the field because their people have rebelled. And the Lord says, my people are stupid or foolish. And, you know, Jesus' words here, eternal life is to know God. That's not just a New Testament here. This is all the way through the Old Testament. These people that are foolish, they don't know me. There's a real significance to that. They don't know what God is like. They don't trust him. They don't know the truth about his character. They don't know me. They are foolish children. They have no understanding. They are experts at doing what is evil, but failures at doing what is good. I looked at the earth, and it was a barren waste. Tohu bohu. At the sky, there was no light. Okay, now is this just describing physical characteristics of the earth at that time? Or is the meaning, really? I mean, isn't this describing a a great spiritual darkness? And so um, many have suggested that there's, even in the first few verses of Genesis, it would suggest that our world was created uh, in a setting that was perhaps not perfect. Greg Boyd in his book, God at War, said on this that there are several aspects of the Genesis narrative that indicate that while the creation of Genesis 1, 2, and onwards is good, it is set in the context of a broader environment that is not altogether good. And in uh, John Levison's book, Persistence of Evil, that this term, tohu vabohu, that are the forces that oppose Yahweh and his acts of creation, the forces of disorder, injustice, affliction, and chaos, which are, in the Israelite worldview, one. Okay, so the, the great controversy, I mean, we know just because the serpent was in the tree, we know something was going on. Okay, but, but the text here would, would kind of uh, perhaps try to point us further in that uh, direction. And also just on darkness here. Was this just a physical darkness? Um, you know, the meaning of darkness here can mean all kinds of things in, as it's used in the Bible. Misery, destruction, death, ignorance, sorrow, wickedness. This Hebrew word for, for darkness as it's used in other places. 
And uh, the, the Net Bible, which, which uh, really is worthwhile to get one, has about 70,000 footnotes in it. So sometimes there'll just be one verse on a page, and then the whole rest of the page is footnotes. Okay, but the word here for darkness, Hebrew word for darkness, but in the Bible has come to symbolize what opposes God. And there are all these examples in the rest of the Old Testament that darkness uh, refers to judgment, death, oppression, the wicked, and in general, sin. And just one example here, 1 Samuel 2.9, that God will protect his faithful ones, but the wicked will disappear in darkness. Same word that's used for darkness in the, in the first, uh, first or second verse of the Bible. Okay, and another, again, more, more subtle uh, nuanced here, but, but just wondering, is there interpretation here? That God blessed them. He said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Does that mean to subdue? The earth. Uh, other translations will say to bring it under your control. And th- this Hebrew word for subdue, when it's used elsewhere in the Old Testament, is uh, variously translated to English as to enslave or to conquer. What does that mean to conquer the earth? Subdue it. Okay, and finally, one other. God placed the man in the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and guard it. Does that mean to cultivate and to guard? Okay, and uh, I like, uh, again, Greg Boyd's comment on this, that it's usually interpreted to mean that Adam was simply to till the garden, as though protecting the garden from weeds was his greatest concern. But in light of the fact that the broader narrative suggests that the ground did not become resistant to Adam or produce things like weeds until after the rebellion, and in light of the fact that a malvolent serpent appears in the next chapter, with the intent of bringing Adam and Eve's paradise to ruin, one could easily argue that Adam's charge to guard the garden concerned more than weeds. He was supposed to protect Eden from malevolent forces represented by the serpent. Okay, so I think we, we can easily bring the serpent in, um, you know, just by the fact that he's there in the tree, but, but some other hints about a great controversy, a cosmic conflict um, that, that were at play here. And the point that was made earlier that I I just wanted to to kind of reinforce that we do not have Satan jumping out from every tree in the garden. He's only at one tree. And so I think at a minimum we could say that the tree was for their protection. It did limit Satan. And so I think kind of the question maybe we need to ask now is why was he allowed access at all? Okay, why not banished from the garden entirely? So... um, Let's, uh, let's talk a little bit about the interaction between uh, the serpent and Eve at the tree, because this has, I think, real implications for our understanding. So the snake was the most cunning, crafty, subtle animal that the Lord God had made. And the snake asked the woman, did God really tell you not to eat fruit from any tree in the garden? Okay, maybe I shouldn't have highlighted the one word there, but uh, what, what are the implications of his words. I'm sorry? It was a much stronger ban than just one tree. Okay. Yeah, and again, what were God's words here? Well, you have on your handout, but um, don't tell me my computer has crashed. There we go. That you may freely eat from every tree. Isn't this a complete uh, contradiction? Right? God said you may freely eat from every tree, and Satan essentially says you can't eat any fruit in this garden. Okay, a complete reversal 
Um, and, and again, what are, what are the implications of the words? Is, you know, we just imagine Eve kind of uh, reflecting on this. What was the desired intent of the words? What did Satan want to have kind of working through her mind uh, when, when she considered this? What's the implication about God? He's not fair. Yes. He's not fair? Yeah, did you have a comment? Certainly not generous. Yeah. He'll let you just go hungry. He'll let you just go hungry. Yeah. Uh, is there an implication that God is arbitrary in this? Could we insert the word, has God arbitrarily forbidden you to eat any fruit from this garden? If this is true, uh, what, um, what would we make, make out about God's view of freedom? Is there a suggestion that uh, how, is, how high is God's review, uh, view of freedom? Is, is this meant to limit somewhat Eve's take on, on how free God had made her? Would it perhaps Eve begin thinking, well, why should I have my freedom limited at all? You know, is it just maybe to get kind of a foot in the door and to begin thinking through some of these things? And also, um, just consider her response. What do you think about Eve's response? She said, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden. It's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden. We are not allowed to eat. God said, you must not eat it or even touch it. If you do, you will die. What do you think about her response? What's that? She added something. She added something. What did she add? Yeah, well, we don't have on record that God said, you can't touch it. But uh, what else? Is this a good response? What, what should Eve have done? I mean, she shouldn't have responded at all. No matter what he says, he's getting her into a debate. Yeah, so just to stand there and be engaged in dialogue was, was a rather foolish um, choice. <clears throat> you can look at both what God said and Eve's quote. Was this a prescription or a description? Mm-hmm. God gave a description of behavior that would result in life. Eve quoted it back as a prescription, which had no basis. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think it's a way we sometimes look at what God tells us. Mm-hmm. Is this a prescription or is it a description of reality? Mm-hmm. God gave a description of reality. Mm-hmm. Uh, Eve did not or turned off that aspect of it. And that caused it to become arbitrary. Yeah, very good. And uh, just, uh, again, the, to quote the Net Bible here, I found these footnotes quite helpful because I had not picked up on this before. But uh, they say there is a noticeable change between what the Lord God had said and what the woman says. God said you may freely eat. Those were his words. Okay, now when the woman is defending or in, in conversation with Satan, she omits the emphatic infinitive saying simply we may eat. She doesn't say we may freely eat. So even she seems to be now taking it down a notch. Instead of saying we may freely eat, she just says we may eat. Her words do not reflect the sense of eating to her heart's content. So even her reply would suggest we're, we're moving in the wrong direction. Yes? It kind of seems to me like uh, when Satan asked Eve that question, it was kind of like a teacher. Now, explain to me how you understand this. 
Now I'm going to try to straighten you out. Mm-hmm. You know, type of thing. It's almost like, how do you interpret what God said? Mm-hmm. She did. She added the don't touch it. So you've got interpretation, and yeah. you've got somebody questioning. Yeah, and uh, this little part here, her adding, uh, we can't touch it. Uh, you know, if you have uh, kids, this just reminded me, you catch your child doing something they shouldn't, and they begin kind of babbling on, adding little extra things that didn't really happen as, as the words just kind of flow out. And so I just kind of wonder if uh, so just some, some nonsense is, is coming out here in the conversation. Well, th- so this is the first point. Now, of course, I think here's a real dagger, that Satan's response the Satan replied, that's not true. You will not die. Okay, what's, what is the implication here? And we have to imagine Satan here being very calculated with a goal. And so what's, uh, we, we said the first words were kind of to suggest God's arbitrary. He's not really respective of your freedom. And so what's the implication here? Yeah, God is a liar. Really, he's, he's not trustworthy. Uh, it's quite a bold um, statement here, but I think he must feel like he really has the upper hand to go ahead and say that. And uh, again, the, from the Net Bible, this is a blatant negation, equal to saying, not, you will surely die, not. Okay, very damaging. And then finally, uh, going in for the kill, he's, he would say, God said that because he knows that when you eat it, you will be like God and know what is good and what is bad. So again, initially, you know, comes along and says, you know, this is kind of arbitrary. You can't eat the fruit in this garden. And then finally he comes down to say, well, really, there is a reason. And what's the reason? God is selfish. God is withholding something that would really be for your own good. And do you think that perhaps there is, a, this would stimulate some selfish desire in Eve to have something, to become greater. I mean, I think this is all kind of a, of a, a very deadly uh, progression here. And of course, you know how the story ends up, that when the cool evening breezes were blowing, the man and his wife heard the Lord God walking about in the garden. And Sigvia said several times, one of the saddest portions of the entire Bible, they hid from the Lord God among the trees. Were they afraid of the snake or of God at this point? Okay, they're afraid of God. And the Lord God called to the man, where are you? Is that unusual? Did he look around for a few hours, just couldn't find them? I you know, wonder where those guys are. Did he not know where they were? Yeah, why did he say, where are you? What if he had just, boom, he's right there. Don't you think this was a less threatening way of presenting himself? Okay, we don't have the tone of the voice. We often imply that he was shouting, okay, but it doesn't say that. He called out, where are you? And, of course, he replied, I heard you in the garden, so I hid. I was afraid because I was naked. And uh, does this seem to reflect a change in the character of Adam and Eve? Notice what Adam said. Okay, very uh, heroic here. The woman you put here with me gave me the fruit, and I ate it. It's her fault. Okay, and isn't kind of the implication, well, it's your fault too. You know, why did you make her? And the Eve says, uh, well, why did you do this? The snake tricked me. So, uh, again, you know, deferring 
blame here, uh, this suggests uh, a change. And so what happened to them? Of course, we know they, they left the garden. But I think a, an implication here of arbitrariness, it would certainly be, is the, is the punishment a natural consequence or is the punishment something imposed? And let me give you some examples. You tell your teenager, you may not smoke. Um, is that an arbitrary command? What do you think? Is that arbitrary as a parent? Most of you are strongly shaking your head no. Why is, why is that not an arbitrary command? What happens? Teenagers, is, is there a natural consequence? Are you trying to prevent them from something? Is there a rationale and reason for giving a rule like that to a teenager? It makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? So this is not arbitrary because the, the punishment for smoking, it, it's inherent. It's not imposed by the parent. Uh, this is a picture taken yesterday of the down power line in Los Angeles. And uh, there's a child uh, playing around the power line. Now, many schools were closed, um, as you know, because of the severe windstorms we've been having. Uh, was the rule to close the schools an arbitrary decision? Not based on any reason or rationale, no goal in mind, just an arbitrary decision, we're going to close schools. No, there was a, a very good reason for closing schools, right? We've got situations like this. We want to keep kids away from that. It's for their protection. So again, if we have rationale for giving a rule, if it's to prevent something that could be deadly, it ceases be, to become an arbitrary uh, requirement. And yeah, maybe it didn't work for them. They're still playing around the power lines. And uh, Graham Maxwell's example that uh, I've always appreciated, you tell your children that they must brush their teeth. You necessarily, are you able to, ra- to explain to a toddler what happens if you don't brush your teeth? No, it, is it an arbitrary rule? It's not arbitrary. Because if you don't brush your teeth, you're going to get cavities and, and all of that. And dentists and parents don't insert cavities. It's a natural consequence of not... Uh, brushing teeth. Okay, so so none of these are arbitrary. Okay, so the the example here where Brent took the one handout up here that he was not supposed to take, well, that was an arbitrary decision on my part, right? Just to say you can't have that handout over there. And therefore the punishment, if you break an arbitrary rule, the punishment also is arbitrary, isn't it? And it's imposed. It's not inherent to... There wasn't anything bad about that handout. Okay, it was arbitrarily imposed. So do you think this would be fair to say that arbitrary rules tend to be associated with arbitrary punishments that are somewhat artificially chosen? Do you agree with that? So I think the implication of whether it was arbitrary or not has a lot to say about what we understand about what happened. Did God have to now arbitrarily do something? to Adam and Eve. And the, the, the words that we, we read about how they're blaming each other, they seem to be kind of selfishly protecting their own interest here. Uh, this is an Ellen White quote where uh, she said, Eve believed the words of Satan and the belief of that falsehood in regard to God's character. That's the issue. She believed a lie about God. And notice what effect that had. Changed the condition and character of both herself and her husband. They were changed from good and obedient children into transgressors. Again, did God do this to them? Or was this a, a natural consequence of the, the believed lies? There was another hand up here. It's nice for us to look back and analyze this and come up with these nice conclusions. 
Do you think Adam and Eve themselves could have come to this conclusion? Um, just as an example, if you were to put a bomb in that um, handout over there, your your command would not have been arbitrary. Is that what you're saying? Yes. And but we wouldn't understand that. We would still perceive your command as arbitrary until he went over and picked it up and blew himself up. Unless I told you, you know, that there is a bomb there and that it will explode. <laughs> yeah. It was, could you make it more severe than to say you will die? Um, you know, I, and I guess, would we, would we wish God had done it a different way? Had somehow, uh, what words would we want God to, to say about the tree that would have perhaps been more fitting? On the previous page, <clears throat> where you had the first quote of the NET notes. Eve obviously had a very limited sense of God's generosity. as the beginning sequence that we have going through here. And Satan played with her limited sense of God's generosity to take that limited sense and move it toward God is arbitrary. Had God inadequately informed her and so forth, could we have understood God's character without this fall? Hmm. And so forth. And I obviously believe we could. We could have. That was God's plan. But she acted on her inadequate information, trusting other than God. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a very common behavior mm-hmm. uh, that came in. Mm-hmm. Yes. I think the, uh, you know, following what the gentleman said in, in the fourth row here a minute ago, um, I think it, there is more to it, more to the consequences of eating the fruit than you shall surely die. Um, their actions have led to all the circumstances following wars and calamities and, and disease and, you know, all that. And it's, okay. Good. Now, um, I want to just, uh, I, in the last few minutes here, I'd like to actually take what happened at the tree because, yes, go ahead. It is funny to say, it doesn't say, it says you will die. It doesn't say I will kill you. You know, it's, it's not I will punish you. Yeah. You will die. It makes a huge difference, doesn't it? Whether... We see God as the executioner in that, or again, do we see this as, as a more of a, of a natural consequence? I agree, that's extremely important. Well, let's, uh, let's use what happened at the tree. Now, we're not told in detail this, this war in heaven, but, but I would like to make an assumption here that the methods we see Satan use at the tree are methods that he consistently uses, and that whatever it is about this war in heaven, that we get some insights into perhaps what went wrong in the first place. And again, as much as we can understand about this, I think we're better able to understand uh, even about the tree. So I want to give an illustration here. Sigvi is not here, unfortunately, but uh, let's just imagine that we are part of a large church. Sigvi is the pastor, and we have tithes and offerings, and, um, you know, we get together periodically. And, uh, you know, you see me running around with a microphone and helping Sigvi, so maybe you you assume that uh, I'm someone who could be trusted. And uh, that I come up to you uh, one Sabbath and say, you know, I'd, I'd like you to, to join me in praying with Sigvi, for, for Sigvi. 
Um, you know, he's come on some hard times, and uh, I'm afraid he's been embezzling some of the tithes and offerings that have been coming in. And, um, you know, that I very subtly go around and, um, and talk with several of you about this. Um, now, how do you clear up something like that? It is very, very difficult when, when a, a lie, especially when it's given in apparent sincerity, um, very hard to clear that up. And I think we're kind of grappling with how God has dealt with this situation. Of course, what we want him to do is use force very often, right? Just eliminate it. Okay. Well, uh, when, yeah, that's right. Eliminate who at this point? But, um, but again, that would be problematic, wouldn't it? You're an angel. What happened to Lucifer? Well, he's been eliminated. Okay, first of all, I don't think it was in God's character to deal with the situation that way. But um, again, this would have uh, stirred up more problems. What about just banishing him to a planet billions of light years away? He's gone. He's out there. He can do his own thing. We'll never hear from him again. No tree. He's just far, far away and anyone who wants to, to join him. Um, would we all feel comfortable with God who dealt with rebellion in that way? Okay, would we prefer God to run the universe that way? And, of course, uh, another thing would be claims. And we have lots of claims. And claims can be helpful. Here's one I like. Uh, this is a claim. It's very believable. It's from Jesus himself, who would say from the very beginning he was a murderer. He's never been on the side of truth. There is no truth in him. When he tells a lie, he's only doing what is natural to him because he is a liar and the father of all lies. Okay, but that's, it's a claim. Now, I think we take the Bible as a whole, we can trust Jesus that this is, is the reality, but claims are, don't always settle the situation, okay? And uh, I just thought of uh, Herman Cain here recently. Um, how do you know? You know, it, it's, it's a claim. Sigby got up before the class and said, I know these, these uh, rumors have been circulating, I just want to tell you they're not true. Would every single one of you leave here? Well, you probably would because you, you know, no one trusts Sigvi, but maybe there would still be some slight doubt in some of you. I just, I wonder if it could be true. Okay, would just this statement, it's not true, be enough to, uh, to convince everyone? Okay, and I think really what is needed is evidence. Isn't that what's needed? If the implication is that money is being embezzled, isn't the only way you could really say, no, it's not true? You do a line item every single dollar that comes in, and it's all accounted for. Isn't that the only thing that would really convince you that it absolutely is not true? And I think that's the situation God is dealing with. When you have lies and subtle ones, very damaging ones, uh, it can't be dealt with with force or claims. Ultimately, you need evidence. And so I think... um, you know, ultimately, the evidence here, I mean, just imagine, as, as Adam and Eve are in the bushes, hiding, shaking in fear of God, uh, could they imagine that God would be the one to limit his freedom to an infinite degree, uh, to spend nine months in the womb, to grow up as a baby? Uh, was there a picture of God at all Jesus Christ at that time? Uh, this was the, the ultimate evidence, and we had to wait a long time for it, a God who would lay his life down for others. Uh, that's real evidence. You know, if we're tempted to believe these, these kinds of lies, uh, I mean, this, this is what's compelling. This is, I think, what really changes 
hearts and minds. And the last point here is just on the, on the tree. Again, read Sigby's article. It's, it was so helpful. But the, the tree, can we possibly understand the tree and associate that in our minds primarily with one word, and that is freedom. There was freedom to at least hear the opposition. Okay, uh, the most severe warning possible, you will die. But there was a, a, like a voting booth. There was uh, an opportunity to, to go and to, to make a decision. And Origen's comments here, the most general of all laws of the universe. Is it a law of the universe? Freedom. I love this quote here by C.B. Caird, that omnipotence is not to be understood as the power of unlimited coercion, but as the power of infinite persuasion, the invincible power of self-negating, self-sacrificial love. That, that God's way of dealing with all of this, it was not coercive, it was to provide evidence, the truth presented in love, and then to allow us to make up our own mind. But I have a final question for you, and I won't answer this, but will there be a tree in the new earth? Will there be one tree? Well, it's interesting. The description here is actually that there are two trees. Uh, with a river in between, and the two trees are joined. Uh, what would be the implication um, of that? W- is God going to give up freedom in the new earth? Will we still be free? Will he remove freedom? I, th- I think if perhaps we see these two trees coming together, and where the leaves are for healing, that it, it, perhaps this would just be a, a testament that the supreme, you know, what God values so much is the freedom of his creatures. You know, he already had pets, but he wanted people, people that could freely choose and decide.